0: i i'm just like about to get my backyard area ready for hangouts we purchased a new outdoor couch um and i are currently building a little pergola for out there oh what what is with these words pergola a pergola yeah (laughs) a pergola it's like it's like Yeah, yeah. Uh, subtract pergola. a little from a gazebo and and you're there, you know. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. The <laughs> ah. I saw I see like googling pergola, they have like oh, you can get one at Home Depot. You can get one at Lowe's. You can get one at Best Buy?
1: What? Really? Well, the that's an electronics store, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well maybe it maybe it has a um like a Bluetooth? USB outlet. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah, it has like a LED rainbow underlighting. <laughs> Is is, is it just uh, uh, maybe it's just me, but I actually kind of find it really obnoxious that a lot of tech just has rainbow LEDs in it for no reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's like, how do you, yeah,
0: it's for gamers, for real
1: gamers. gamers. That's how you know. That's how you know. How are so many gamers, how are so many capital G gamers homophobic when all their shit flashes rainbow? Tell me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) We got it
0: we We are in Acheron. We are moving over the the town center. We can see the magnificent bonfire, the the many tables that have been set up with people of all kinds. Some who are locals who have known Jonat all their lives. Some are crew members of the Uhuru. Some are people who have come to visit And we can see that throughout the evening, there are processions of people moving in and out of the celebration. At this point, it doesn't seem to matter that Jonnet himself and the Kessler family aren't there. This is an evening for them and about them, but that also means it is for the people around them. And one such procession that arrives late into the celebration is a small ship that actually lands out in the fields around Acheron, the waving wheat grasses that surround this place. And moving through, we can see that this is the Tempest, the flagship of the Tempest Armada. And with this procession, like we can see, familiar pirates—those uh, very same—who met with Oromar and the rest of his captain's council back in Ungoni to determine what was wrong with the feather weave that was being sold. At the head of this procession is Sifa, a woman who is in her mid-sixties. Uh, she is attended by her captain's council, currently like trying to move their way through the wheat fields without causing too much stir. They make it to the celebration, bringing their various gifts and warm congratulations. They meet up with the crew of the Storm, who are also here to celebrate Jonnet and Zana. And the party rolls on, until Sifa makes eye contact with Captain Orimar. Oromar, where does she find you?
1: So, we see Oromar at some of the the late night, the midnight market stalls. Mm -hmm. Where they're selling a wide variety of kind of like sweets and baked goods. There's a lot of feasting that happens both out in public and at home. And essentially uh, Oromar is picking up a a wide variety of local delicacies and putting them into a wicker hamper. Having paid for the last bit of uh, uh, artisanally smoked sausage he kind of turns around is about to kind of rum it's ru- actually yeah it's rummaging around in a coat pocket for a badly scrawled list of things to find and uh meets Sefa's eyes and the hand slowly stops rummaging
0: yeah i kind of feel This is a little schlocky, but I'm very into it. We we get like the camera rotates around these two and as it rotates around we can see them changing through different stages of their life. Like Mm. rotates around them now as like they are they're fully grown adults and then we see them the time they have first met, where Oromar is, you know, probably not much older than nineteen. And Sifa is in her mid-twenties. Like, at this point, Sifa is much less full. Like, uh, she definitely, in in her older years, put on a lot of weight. um, But she is still extremely broad. And I think there are patches of like the facial hair that we can see on Sifa at this time like I think she probably has like longer sideburns that like kind of hang down and have been tied back into her hair but it is it is also not as like full or rough as it is later on in her life. How does Ormar look at 19?
1: Hmm. Oromar is a uh, scrawny motherfucker uh, mm. like a uh, a bunch of springs that have been wound too tight there is a whole bunch of uh, youthful energy that has on many occasions uh, flung out of control and managed to get himself in large amounts of trouble in the neighborhood before that was neatly tidied away and locked down in his uh, red feather ship days but now that he is uh independent uh let's say that youthful energy is uh, willing to be unleashed once again until he finds other ways to keep it in check the full Pirates of Penzance look as before as we say, big long shiny black boots, the silk shirt, one button many to open for whatever given circumstance that he's in, so sometimes that's just all the way baby Uh...
0: (laughs) how can how can i get the shirt more open than it's supposed to be mm-hmm. yeah I, I think we could pro- you know Ormar obviously does not have any tattoos yet no. um at this point like almost
1: nary chest hair i think he gets the body hair like surprisingly late so even though he's got all that open it's just waxed sheen this is oromar twink era
0: I love that. I I love taking someone who is just a, a, a daddy like Oromar and peeking into the past and go, yes, even he too was a twink mm-hmm. at one point. Yeah, and and we can see Sifa. Sifa does not have any of the finery. There, there are maybe one or two uh, lapis lazuli like beads uh, that she might have on, like a bracelet, or perhaps in her hair. But for the most part, she lacks kind of the decoration that we have seen uh, and are accustomed to seeing her later in life. Mm-hmm. And I think the camera whirls again, and we cut to maybe ten years later, where they have. Together, founded finally the Tempest Armada. In this, Sifa is dressed a little bit more finely, a little bit more professionally. I think her facial hair is probably like shaved back right now. She has quite a few more scars on her body, and she is now missing a finger. She uh, has has put on more weight. I think. Her hips are larger, her, her thighs are a bit thicker. It's very clear in the way that she carries herself. It's, like, kind of a weightlifter body. Like, you know, you, you've seen people maybe carrying a lot of weight, but they are lifting, like, ludicrous amounts of, of weight uh, w- with their power. Like, that is exactly the sort of body that I picture Sifa having. Mm. Her hair is also, like much longer and now being tied, but we can't really see it because it is now being tied up in a turban um, that she carries on her head. Mm.
1: Uh, Oromar at this stage has started growing out his hair and is uh, now in dreads that go to his shoulders. Um, There are a few gold pieces uh, and ornaments and trinkets in it, but not that many. Uh, Instead, what he was doing around this time to kind of mark his conquests is that he would take fabric from the various red feather ships and enemy pirates and use them to sew new clothing. In addition, he always keeps the red coat. The red coat is the signature piece. But there was a, a, an, an interesting fashion era of the of, of this age where it was um, kind of like hand-stitched patchwork clothing that was quite nicely done, but definitely obvious that it was composite of a whole bunch of different fabrics and people and places.
0: That rules. I love that. We have the camera whirl once more to the moment when these two parted, uh, dissolving Oromar's partnership with the Tempest Armada. At this point in her life, Sifa is much older. Her facial hair is back. It it has grown in uh, much farther along the sides of her face and her chin. We can see that it is grayed now. She has many more scars on her body. I think her skin overall is like carried much softer. You know, there, there is like the, the weight of years is very apparent. Her fingers and hands are like thick with calluses from just a lifetime of doing difficult work. And her eyes feel so much sharper and harder at this point.
1: Mm. Oromar, now fully into his dad era, actually does have the shirt fully open, but that is because it is a very hot day that this happened to occur on. The red feather jacket is around his shoulders as if it were a cape, rather than his arms being sleeved into it. And uh, the trousers that he's wearing are very much workman's trousers, actually. Thick, leather-padded definitely designed for hard work and uh, at this point you can tell that he's also been through a lot of hard work, the scars that are scratched across his chest uh, the tattoo that is there his hair now at its full length with all the decorations in it that we have come to expect but he is not wearing the large player hat, that is actually something that he did increasingly after he died
0: (laughs) Oh, I love that I love that yeah, the, the camera whirls that final time, and we are in the present day. You know, we, we can see that Sifa has dressed for this occasion respectfully. There is finery to denote, like, kind of the, the power of her office as the, the leader of the Tempest Armada. But it there's not much glamour. Uh, it is not to distract. It is mostly to signify that I... With all the responsibility that I have, have come to this place to pay my respects, um, but not take up attention. Mm. And we can see the expression on her face; those eyes that were so hard just a few years ago. There is a softness to them, a, a sadness to them, perhaps even a touch of longing. And we can see, you know, kind of behind her vaguely, that uh, there is her captain's council, there is the crew of the Tempest. We can see that, like, they are all Corsairs, obviously. They're just a little bit more, I would say, straight-laced than Oromar's group. And she, like, stands out from kind of the, the, the celebration and levity around her as she looks at Oromar for the first time now, Really, in I think a few weeks, maybe maybe a, maybe a month and a half, mm. um, and how all other meetings were, were more brief and, and more tense. Yes,
1: Arma removes the rummaging hand in his pocket, walks up to Sifa, tilts his hat so it's out of his eyes, and they can actually lock eyes properly. And he says, "Sifa, you've not aged a day since I last saw you. But then, neither have I.
0: (laughs) She smiles and laughs with you, the yellow in her eyes, which is always just a bit lighter than the night around her when she is in darkness smiles back, it is It is still, like, tinged with this, this sadness, and she goes, I appreciate your flattery, as always, Mr. Vale. I believe it would be appropriate to speak in a more private setting.
1: Arma, his expression doesn't change, but inside Ormar there is a like a jolt of apprehension at mr Vale rather than Ormar to be referred to by surname even though we're in a public setting there is too much history to be referred to by family name at this stage and he's a little taken aback very well I am uh, I think done with the shopping. That I was intending to do, so I have some free time before my next appointment. Turns out that celebrations are a busy time for everyone.
0: I feel like very casually you're you're able to hand off like like your basket full of things to like Pliff or someone. Mm. <laughs> I think that's the thing about these two like super famous pirate captains is like you can just hand something off to the side and there is someone from your crew there. Oh, I love that while we're having this exchange, we're
1: just casually gesturing without looking and people are coming in out of frame to kind of like take bags, put on scarf, remove jacket for both of us. Like we're uh, being in a quick change pit stop, as it were. And now we are in uh, private talking attire. We can move elsewhere. Yeah,
0: I think, let's oh, say, so Bathroom Barry is on break. Mm-hmm. So I, I think what it is, like, there's all of this quick changes. You are kind of guided to the the, the edges of the party. And I think there's just a place where, where the stars above Acheron and the nearly full moon, well, actually, yeah, ne- nearly full i think it is like the tomorrow will be the full moon mm-hmm. is bright in the sky providing just enough light for you to see and the last folks to attend to either of you there is leo toa to to sifa who you know has like like taken the last thing and sort of taken up a, a century post they have a, a weapon at their hip um and they appear to to have like as much apprehension as as kind of everyone else like i kind of feel like everyone from the tempest and the uhuru crew that was like involved in all of this is like not really sure what is going to happen that there's a level of that apprehension and then to orimar i feel like it is spit mm-hmm. who is standing to watch there you know spit as Gable had instructed uh, the whole crew, um, whether they knew it or not, was, is not really holding weapons. Everyone in the crew has a knife because knives are welcome at dinner, but no no other weapons are shown. And spit, you know, it is a mixture of concern and hope and all of the things that, that someone who, you know, took on either an elder sibling or, you know, surrogate parent role for for someone would have, looking at both Oromar and Sifa as they go off to have their private conversation. Mm,
1: I think Oromar, before he steps away, despite all this not really acknowledging the uh, rest of the crew as we are changed and things carried, Oromar turns to spit and actually kind of places a hand I think, like on the side of the face, slightly, so there, there's 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 skin to skin contact. So he makes eye contact with Spit and says, um, "Return for me in twenty five minutes, and not a minute sooner."
0: Spit nods, and I think, like with that order, Spit will, uh, when you walk away, put an arm, uh, a hand on Leotoa's shoulder, and kind of like signal, like. We, we can stand i've been around this block hundreds more times than you <laughs> we can stand down for a bit mm. a, a, a smile is offered and uh, i think
1: inside it is actually a quite a sad smile but uh, whether Oromar's face is able to replicate that in the minute i like the idea that when orimar is not focusing on trying to act facial expressions actually come slightly easier because it's just effortless rather than trying to think to individually move the muscles in one's face. It just happens. So, uh, spit gets quite a genuine sad smile as he turns
0: to leave. When you are finally alone, you can see emotion overwhelm Sifa's face as she looks to you. She I think while you were walking, sort of like in the Rakshari tradition, customarily like bared her chest. Mm -hmm. And she looks up at you as, you know, she is shorter than you. I I, I don't want to attach myself to a specific number to Sifa's height. But I do know that she looks up at Orimar. Mm -hmm. She looks so much smaller, so much older, so much more vulnerable in this moment. It's an odd contrast because obviously when the Tempest met the Uhuru uh, officially in Ungoni, she was dressed very similarly. But there, there's just something about how all of the power and authority that she has built up over all of these years is like stripped away in a moment where you can see the big emotion on her face as she looks at you is concerned. Lumen's eye What has happened to you? I uh,
1: Moved house I suppose You know It's strange I thought Returning to my own body After Circumstances would be comforting Like returning to A childhood home uh, but what I have actually returned to is a quiet, dusty, cobweb-ridden mansion. But it is a place to stay, and the roof doesn't leak when it
0: rains. She moves forward and reaches for Orimar's hand. Mm-hmm. And
1: well, it would be akin to shaking hands with a uh, wax figure, I suppose. No pulse, no warmth. Just an
0: object. Yeah, she, she grabs it and like, I think, holds it close to her chest. I... It is so... It is so good to see you. But I had heard rumors there is information that moves around I didn't doubt them you told me exactly what you intended to do and I have known you long enough to know that should you intend to do something it will be done Mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't know it would feel like this um
1: honestly me neither best laid plans and all that but um I, I know it must feel like this conversation is happening maybe an infinite stretch away that you're talking to a uh, facsimile a puppet of the man that you once knew but I
0: know Oromar No Looking in your eyes It is clear You are the man you were Nothing has changed there It is like It is like seeing one that you care for Very deeply Grievously wounded They are there But they are hurt
1: Yes, I suppose, but I. Uh, <laughs> will you allow me to uh, spend a moment to be. A smile? Philosophical? You've had limited patience for that at times in the past, but.
0: A similar smile creeps across her face. I believe we can be afforded that indulgence. Hmm. Or, uh, I uh,
1: i think when we were talking about plans of the future uh, how we saw ourselves once we had managed to uh, fix the ills of this world we maybe pictured what we looked like we get like a couple frames of just resplendency all Entirely normal, easy to obtain, ethically made fabrics, but goddamn these two pirate regesses look hot.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very brief. The Bandit Queen and the Pirate King. Hmm. All fanciful versions of them. Hundreds of them, I feel like, splintered out with a similar motif that we have for for Jonat's Pathways of the Universe. Mm -hmm. And this, like, um, stained glass depiction of all the things that could have been and might have been that they allowed themselves to imagine on tender nights together.
1: And then, under current circumstances, I, well... I realized that that was never going to happen. And similarly, we see that frame shatter like a rock had been thrown through this elaborate stained glass. But it has made me think about what can truly endure. Ideas, community, a sense of balance and peace. Those things can endure beyond any idea of what a body is supposed to look like, I think. So, uh, I'm hoping that with time and as plans proceed, my attachment to what was once before and in what one pathway of a seer's eye could be could happily settle into something else and something
0: different. Sifa nods. Ormar, it would never matter to me what you, what you look like or what what you've done. The, The only thing that I regret is pain. Years ago, when we first parted ways, it was because neither of us are folk who are built to move, to budge from the things that we believe, the things that we know must be done because they are necessary. I know it hurt you as it hurt me.
1: Sheer obstinacy, the both of us. <laughs> um.
0: And I, I regret that that I fear that that led to you doing this in, in some small way. I know I know that you are a man who is, who is moved by very little but, but your conviction, your belief. I know that there is a chance that you would have faced down death a hundred different ways. To think that To think that that moment might have made you careless. When I think on... The man... That I knew. She looks up to you into your eyes again. What he meant. What he felt. This wound that you carry... Is in a way one that I have dealt to you. That is my feeling.
1: The... Cold hand... That uh, Sifra is holding around uh, so it's probably a strange sensation feeling an inert object move under its own power I um, I will be uh, wise in our years and say thank you for being so open and honest with me about that uh, it feels so easy to uh, when you are looked up to as a, as a leader and I say this for both of us not just me that you would say whatever you need to say in order to keep things moving and in order to maintain the status that we are find ourselves in so I appreciate what you've said but I don't think that you should blame yourself for this. Well,
0: the other thing about leadership, Ormar, you blame yourself for everything that happens.
1: Oh, I don't blame myself either. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, perhaps that has always been our difference.
1: Hmm. <laughs> uh, what I will say that I be blame is, uh... Oh. <sighs> the endless ebb and flow of ideological clashing and what that can do to people, maybe. <laughs> it's not just you. We've not seen eye to eye many, many times before, and uh, you're not the only person or the first. Um, but uh, I, uh, there were other ideological clashes down the road between what we once were, And what I now am So I I don't think you need to uh, Let The current circumstances weigh heavy In that way Maybe let the fact that you were wrong weigh heavy But otherwise
0: She raises an eyebrow At that and Withdraws like Just a half step I must ask you A question Of course and before I do, I need you know this. I trust you. I offered you my heart in bujaneeth Because I trust you. Fundamentally, whether you are a member of the Armada or not, its power, I believe, can be trusted in your hands. A hundred favors... There is a lot that someone could do with a hundred favors from the Armada. That was no small gesture, even if I was not there to offer it personally. That said, do you still intend to walk the path that you left my side for all those years ago?
1: A pause. In fact, it looks as if The body of Oromar Vale Has been suspended in animation While the soul considers Specifically what to say And then
0: No Not exactly She visibly relaxes
1: I Oh uh, A bit of a Like made some mental processing of the time And then realized it doesn't matter dinner time trivia for you did you know that if you manage to in body the hand comes out of frame to air quotes and soul truly embodies the essence of a luminary story you can become one
0: Sifa raises another eyebrow this I'll, I will be honest no
1: <laughs> neither did I the world is full of fascinating things uh, how delightful that we can be who we are and where we are in the world and still able to learn new things I suppose although the person I learned it from is maybe less than ideal Orimar glances off to the side <laughs> Travis somewhere sneezes <laughs> <laughs> But I feel that if, ideologically, to share what I feel is right with the world, to help people make those decisions to move away from the oppressors in their lives and give them the tools to do so, I could not do that as a king. I could not inhabit a single physical body tied to this earth and achieve that goal. How foolish I was. But, as a living legend, as a story ever existing, as a luminary, maybe such things could be achieved.
0: Oromar, I... I, I am trying to follow. There, there is there is much to process. You, you, you say that the the artifact that that you showed me in Ungoni, that it, it is it is the lost crown that you described, mm-hmm. but it is a luminary's crown.
1: Mm. I must say that there are certain. Uh, Points. He stares at the ground and I think kicks a pebble from the uh, pre-existing plan to the new circumstance where I haven't worked out all of the finer details, but...
0: My, my, my question is not about how, Oromar. It is about the plan itself. Should you find a way to... Adopt the mantle of the Sovereign's Crown. Should you find a way to claim power beyond power that, that, that currently Sphere itself has not seen in two centuries? I, I, I struggle to. Oromar, my concern now is what my concern was then. If you forge that path, if such a path exists, someone else will be able to follow it. I
1: suppose so. If uh, anybody who takes the uh, path to where I intend to go can do so, then other people can follow in my footsteps. But I tell you who would want to take this road.
0: Oramar, Oramar Vale. You must destroy that crown You must find a way
1: A pause Almost like Two minutes I don't think I can promise that to you at this stage I
0: understand
1: But I I can't I can't Not yet
0: I must admit there is very little in this world, perhaps even only one thing, I want more than to love you. I don't know that it is within me to abide that kind of power anywhere, and it is not just a luminary's power Lumens exist and walk among among us in in many different ways. I know the scantest of the tales of the Sovereign. But I do know that under the Sovereign's power, the time of nations, it was a cruel one. And I know, I know. And she steps towards you once more. She grabs your cold hands. Her face is, is now inches from yours. I know that so long as you held that crown, that things would be different. But if the crown exists, if you exist, then stories change, legends evolve. The crown could be taken from you. You ask who? could do this and i say there are two answers there is you and there is a monster if it fell into the wrong hands if it changed this world could be broken in a way far worse than we have seen under the feathers far worse than we'd seen in the time of nations perhaps even far worse you than if the mariner was to truly overwhelm the coasts It's.
1: I last I checked. Last I checked. Neither of us had a seer's eye. We can pontificate. We can plan. We do our best to do what is right. But do not try and predict the future. (laughs) We both. Not
0: Kate. We must try and predict the future. It is our responsibility. You imagined us. You imagined us long ago as two who would lead into the future, two who would show the people's fear that there is a future where they are not dominated by cruel masters. We must anticipate the possibility that without us to lead the way, that that falls away. And we must anticipate that there will be a time where we cannot, no matter what powers we seize, no matter what trials we undergo, eventually, people die. Stories change.
1: People do indeed die. Stories. Do indeed change. But, well, the Bandari people uh, had an oral tradition for their storytelling, and uh, even if the story does change, I'd like to hope that the moral that I have a hand in instilling will retain in every variation. Oromar considers twisting the knife. At this point, we're quite impassioned, and he considers saying, well, you're conflating the nature of us solving this problem together with the problem being solved. And in a way, that might be true. But... even though Oromar lives... I think for ideological combat such as this there is a degree of him trying to at least in this moment be not a sportsman playing to win but a decent fucking human being even if he's no longer a human being anymore I can't say that you're wrong but I want to explore every angle of what we currently have we are still in a position for us to learn including myself I don't think I actually have the answer just yet and you know that that is something that wrenches me apart to admit out loud you could repeat that to your closest confidant later and I will fight tooth and nail to deny it that I don't know everything already But afford me the opportunity to learn something for a change, obstinate that we both are.
0: She takes a shuddering breath uh, and tries to find a resolute version of herself. I believe that you can be trusted with that. If a path exists, you must find it. What you do with that information, though, Oromar...
1: Will be absolutely world-shaking,
0: I know. Yes. But it will also mean something relatively small. Oromar, I want, for almost nothing more than to love you. I have wanted that for so long. I just know beyond ideology that there is a reason. There is a reason. I would I would hope that you don't chase that power.
1: I We've been at immediate, like, nose-to-nose, eye-to-eye range for uh, a while, where we've been having yelling at each other, actually, directly in each yeah. other's faces for the last couple minutes. If you'd like me to roll for this, I can. But uh, I think in a bid for Oromar to try and move forward, I think even in in the kind of uh, uh, talk about to love each other, I think he tries to move forward, but his body does not. But his soul does. Just emerges from the shell that he pilots and just moves into Sifa. We don't have the kind of connection that I do with Travis, where we can share sure. each other's spaces. But I think for a moment, in this entire concentration of ideology and feeling and emotion, Oromar just forgets to pull at the spider strings of his mansion, and instead just moves.
0: That is really cool. I kind of want... I, like, I don't think I want us to roll for this. I, I like this. This is an involuntary thing, as it's described. So... It makes sense to me that this would happen. We cut away from this, and the next thing that we see is Oromar and Sifa emerging from this private area separately. Oromar goes off to, really, from this moment, the first thing he does is to go see Jonat, which I think mm-hmm. is interesting and telling. Sifa goes off to join leatoa I do think there are tears. And we know that when Oromar awakes next after this night, he will be carrying all of the weight of whatever happened where briefly their two souls were mixed in one body. And he will be doing so, navigating from the heart of the wood. Hey, heroes, it's James, your Game Master, and that was the end of our Acheron arc here on Campaign Skyjacks. As always, I wanted to take some time at the end of the arc to sort of talk about what it was like producing it, different story things that we got into, my my hopes for it, my aspirations, things that I was surprised by, all that good stuff. So let's start up at the top with, I think, the most overwhelmingly positive thing about this arc, which was we had so many really great guest performers with us. Obviously, you know, the, the most like present one was Bees. Bees was someone who actually I met through the auditions for Oromar Vale. Back when we were were doing our auditions, there were several different rounds for that process. We, We haven't really talked about the process much in an overtly public sense because, like, there was just a lot of energy and effort that went into the original casting decision. And there's a bunch of bonus content that, like, is right now just sitting out there. That it feels like, well, it's so long since the actual auditions, like, I I don't know how to package this, and that would take so much effort. And also, we don't have a lot of money to focus, uh, uh, you know, person power on developing that stuff. Uh, So there is stuff that, like, I don't even know if I've talked about publicly how it worked, but essentially... After the initial rounds of the process, which were mostly based on like, have you performed perf- before? Like, do you do you know the like most basics of of how how you do voice acting or, or or performance works in RPGs and whatnot? And after that, people you know had little monologues that I asked them to prepare. Little monologues. They had monologues that I asked them to prepare. Um, I guess they were little in the sense that I did ask them to be quite short because. Um, for that initial thing, we just wanted to hear people's voices, period. But after the monologues, like, when I was like, okay, this person has, like, the right quality character of voice, let's let's move them on, we sent out these things that I felt Oromar might say or I knew at some point Oromar might have had this conversation in the past. And then we gave people, like... Scene premises for the character. Like, you know, this is this character talking to somebody that they had just defeated in battle. And this is this character, like you now describe this character dressing up for a fancy ball and whatnot. And making the choices for that round was so much harder than really anything else that we did at any other point during the audition because— Everybody's talents really came to the fore, and I was struck by how many talented people were going for this role. How any of them conceivably could, could could do it, and I somehow had to choose somebody that would be a good fit from this sea of people who were really qualified, really talented, and and probably would have fit in with the table really well. And bees was one of those people. I ended up like comparing his audition to like the really final four that that we went forward to do interviews and then with the cast improvised auditions with. And Bees was somebody who was like, I, I almost was like, hey, cast, could we, how would you feel if we like moved five people onto this audition instead of four? And, you know, the rest of the cast pointed out that like, hey, it's really hard to get everybody in one place for these auditions that is going to stretch out this process so much more. So I, you know, I took these five people that I was considering and I was like, you know, ultimately Bees is a great performer and I think he would be great on the show, but I don't know if compared to the others, this is the role that I would want him for. So essentially like when I sent out the, the letter being like, hey, you know, we're not moving forward with you on the audition, but... I would really like to work with you at some point if you'd be open to that. Like, I know they can be disappointing, especially like getting so far in audition that like you're you're not moving on. But like, I really do sincerely think you are a great performer and would love to work with you. And Bees was, you know, incredibly gracious and, you know, absolutely willing to join us. And I knew that we had this Acheron arc coming up, that there were going to be a lot of characters from Jonat's past that really needed to be voiced, needed their own person. And, like, I I had this, like, clutch uh, performer in my back pocket. I'm like, either we are going to have somebody portray Hip or somebody portray Jonathan's father. And I think for either one of those, uh, I want it to be B's. And I sort of went back and forth on, on which person, I, uh, you know, it was going to be. And I just figured for performance stuff, we really wanted it to be, or I really ended up wanting it to be Jonathan's father because that way there's a lot of one-on-one interaction with Tyler, I think having somebody come in to play hip, which was a possibility would have put an extra challenge on this performer coming in for a guest role who like, you know, with us that there's a, you know, very real chance that we would have cast like somebody famous from, from other RPG stuff or whatever, but like to have likely your first interaction with, with an audience of our size and whatnot, be a character who has a challenge of like, well, Even if there's all this emotional weight behind it, I essentially can't interact with the one character in this narrative that I'm supposed to have the strongest connection with. It just felt like an unfair position to put almost any performer in. And I just I didn't want that. So I ended up choosing to to reach out to bees and be like, hey, I would like you to play Douglas Kessler, Jonat's father. I had made sure that Tyler named Douglas beforehand so that we'd have all this set up. And then, like, I I reached out and I probably reached out closer to, gosh, it must have been even before we were all the way through our Dumignon arc. I was just excited about it. And so I reached out to Bees. Bees was, like, down for it. And then we sat down and we recorded some world building stuff. So uh, this is actually a little peek at the bonus content that's coming up. There was a – I think the piece of bonus content that we're going to put up first, there was world building um, in Acheron for the the city and space itself and that one – was just the main cast. That was Tyler, uh, uh, Liz, Nathan, and Johnny, like, sitting down and and creating Acheron. Then I took the information that I got from that, and I sat down with Bees, and I was like, let's make this character. And Bees was very keen on us using luminaries. I haven't re-listened to that, so I don't know if I suggested it or Bees suggested it, but, like, One thing that I will say about Bees as a performer, absolutely enthusiastically willing to like really create, dive in there, be a creative partner, which for this show is really what I want. I want people who are making big choices and big swings, even if they're like coming in for a guest role. So like we sat down, we drew these luminaries. And originally I had pictured Jonat's father as a much more, domestic character a a character who was really tied to like growing up in this farming situation even that is like connected to like the the hero of a thousand faces tropes or whatever of like you've got this hero who is coming from you know a mundane place or whatever but like you know there's also the trope of like oh yeah my family has this secret or, or whatnot so like I don't think there's a way to avoid tropes as all stories are told but I was thinking the Kessler family being having like kind of an underwhelming and, and common story of we were in this coastal region and either the Red Feathers made it uh, too expensive to to live in our home that that we had grown up in and and we had to be displaced or the Mariner is attacking the coast and the Red Feathers aren't defending us and we are forced to be displaced like. Somehow driven by these colonial forces and metaphors for colonial forces, away from an area that was familiar and that that was supporting them, and having to go to somewhere that that was completely foreign and new. And I knew that I also wanted to like a, a big part of sort of the the aftershocks of of I don't even want to say aftershocks is colonialism is like an ongoing horrible exploit, but one of the things that, that we see with, with the effects of colonialism and modern times is you have places that people are trying to immigrate to for like economic advantages. Uh, you know, the United States used to be a big part of this story. Um, but who knows with the way that we run this country, uh, how long that will last. But like the idea is that, y- you know, you would get anybody who you could in your family to, to go uh, to live and work in the United States and send remittances back home. So you'd have the family basically set up so that somebody was in this area that like the the family was like separated, but this person was still taking care of the family. There's still that connection and it's this impossible decision in how you do this. So I was like, well, we're going to kind of do the reverse here where basically the Kessler family is separated. Tyler had always said that mom wasn't in the picture and, the, the, there are a bunch of different ways that, that you could do that. But the one that I was really interested in, especially because we're talking about colonialism is where mom is not in the picture because the forces of the world make it impossible for her to be in the picture and the family to be like healthy and secure and and safe. Like this is the thing that is not good emotionally for the family, that the family like is nonetheless made this choice because it's good economically for the family. So you know, it was going to be that Mama Kessler is off somewhere doing a job that pays fairly well, and sending or or well enough, and sending that money to Acheron, which is this community of displaced people where where they're. You know, farming to to like live—that's that's really hard stuff. Um, and like, it is keeping that operation afloat, uh, allowing you know the Kessler's to establish themselves in this new place with maybe like one day the hope that this place will be big enough and sustainable enough that like the family can be together again. And you know, sort of knew that for whatever reason that didn't work out. That one day, money just stopped coming. And originally, before this arc, before sitting down with bees to do this character building session, the thing that I had thought was like, well, you know, either Jonnet's mom passed away or was, like, imprisoned. Like, I I kind of figured that she was out of the picture permanently and that this was just a, a, a tough thing that Jonnet was dealing with. But like when we drew luminaries again you you will hear this on the recording so i don't want to get too much into it when we drew luminaries like they suggested that uh, douglas came from a much more exciting background that he wasn't always like just somebody who was like just trying to survive in this world and that very likely that that winona like also was probably still alive and You know, Bees and I got into this thing where, like, just reading the luminaries that we drew, it became very apparent that, like, Winona was still alive and nobody in the Kessler family knew about it. And that likely Winona and Douglas had this past where they were Aaroners, where, where, like, you know, if not Corsairs, they flew skyships. And the thing about like the characters past the th- and that you have to remember about the setting is that skyships have been around for about sixty years, and because it's so young, it's rapidly gone through like different iterations of what it meant to be an arriner, what it meant to be a corsair, what what it meant to be a red feather, and so like uh, thirty years ago, like halfway through the life of skyships and whatnot. There is this uh what is essentially like the last war on sphere. um and it's it's not even it's hard to define exactly what it is, but it was uh, the declaration of ownership where the red feather syndicate basically said, we believe all featherweave in the sky belongs to the red feather syndicate, and that like it, it will be surrendered to the syndicate. and there are all of these privateers because red feather syndicate like has its own fleet and there are all these like different collections of privateers like doing different work that had previously been purchasing featherweave from the syndicate and using it to fly their own ships and like the red feathers went you know hey we own that feather weave even if we sold it to you we have a big enough fleet now that we can come take it if we want it and you should essentially surrender your ship and and, and business to us because there's nothing that you can do about it. And and so there was this period where like people who had been flying, you know, on their own and whatnot had to band together and, you know, fight, push back against the red feathers. And there was this big, you know, war battle thing fought over it. And the conclusion was like kind of a mixed result for both sides in that the Red Feather Syndicate went, okay, you know, we, we have legitimately sold Featherweave, but we're not selling any more after this point. So the Featherweave that is out there that is privately owned, that is it. We're we're not going to produce any more. There isn't going to be a way to buy new ships from the Red Feather Syndicate. Everything else, like you will have to be hiring one of our ships to do work for you. But everybody who did previously purchase Featherweave, like and owns it right now, you are going to get a a bill of sale, and that essentially, like as long as you have this bill, this essential deed to your weave, you can do what you want with it. You own it, and the Red Feather Syndicate is not going to mess with you. So Douglas and Winona would have been caught up in this because like you have 10 years ago is when Winona would have disappeared from the family 10 years before that would be like the fallout of all of this stuff. And like before that, like we're getting into the actual declaration of ownership and like, you know, there's a period after the declaration of ownership where like the resistance is sort of spooling up and whatnot. But anyway, like the Kessler family was working for the Red Feather Syndicate. Like Douglas would have been a, a flying as an airer, um Winona would have been flying as an airer, and they were on, you know, what at that time it would have been like like they started out on Red Feather Company ships and like they advanced to the point where at least Winona got a captaincy, which like these days, you need to go through the officer's academy. Those days, like, you could probably prove yourself up through the ranks. It was just a different organization. So the, the, they took a look at the turmoil, and they decided that the Red Feather Syndicate, in its new form, like, even after the the fighting was over and, like— they decided to recognize everybody who had an official bill of sale. Like they're like, this organization is dangerous and it is dangerous to work for them. And slowly, like after that fighting, they saw like how the Red Feather Syndicate changed their tactics, the way they would move into towns, take over, take their resources, and like kind of drain them dry, funneling that money back to like Aram and other Red Feather capitals. And they're like, we want no part of this. And we think that eventually this sort of thing will will come for us or, 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 or play play badly for us. And I, I think it might like, I need to re-listen to this uh, bonus content that, that I did with Bees. But like the family for many different reasons was driven out of that original home. To Acheron, and a lot of people who who went to Acheron, like from different places went there because of things like the Mariner pushing them out, things like the red feathers pushing them out. like there are all different reasons that they ended up at this place. And so because the Kessler family is moving like this, it was like, well, Winona has a captaincy. So it doesn't make sense for her to leave this captaincy because that is decent income. So we're going to just keep Winona, you know, being a captain kind of as long as we can tolerate it, and that will support the family trying to find its footing in this new place, you know, being farmers, living an entirely different kind of life. And so, you know, there were a couple years where Winona and Douglas were working together. They didn't want to be too far beneath Red Feathers or or too far on the radar of Red Feathers. Like, they kind of wanted to separate themselves from this life. So they weren't, like, super frequent visits. But, like, yeah, Douglas was raising both kids and Hip, who had been this, like, longtime family friend and flown with them during the conflicts during uh the declaration of ownership and whatnot because that would have happened in their you know late teens and and 20s like informed this close bond with them like was stepping in to help out you know was like visiting the family frequently and helping to establish Acheron kind of as, as as what we know it today as like this thriving community back when it was not a thriving community it was a place uh you know Covered in wild wheat and whatnot, which is not super bad because, like, hey, you've at least got something to to harvest and and grow and whatnot. But it's right near a forest with griffin turkeys, which is wildly dangerous. And you know, people are are trying to farm chickens and like figure out how we care for griffin chickens, which are also wildly dangerous. Like, there are a lot of hardships in the way, and like this family unit was. Trying to make it work until Winona disappears, and you know Douglas and Hip and the Zana and Janet like grieve and and mourn and try to move on, but but it it's hard for for many many years until you know Janet grows up. So like we had discovered this wild backstory uh, uh full of adventure and hidden identities and like hiding from the red feathers which is a lot more exciting than maybe what I had planned for uh, Jonat's family initially. I don't think that's a bad thing. Like wh- when I made Jonat's sister part of the tempest armada like i did want like the kids of this family to be off doing adventurous things i didn't expect their parents to also be doing that and part of that is this i'm i'm trying to like toe a line here with tropes and i don't like any kind of like birthright and family lineage tropes like i am very insistent that nobody no character in skyjacks is remarkable because of the way they were born and you could say well gable's an angel but it's like well gable there are a lot of angels there were thousands of angels gable is the only one that uh, killed god and the reason gable is special is because of choices that they made and that's the same thing with jonnet jonnet has this you know remarkable seer's eye but it's because of both him choosing to to like touch this feather and like kind of spiritually choosing to accept its gifts and also definitively accepting its gifts as he is chasing actively the future that it showed to him. So like it, I didn't want like the fact that Johnnyt's family used to be Aaroners' lead us in a direction of like, well, Johnnyt was born to this or whatever. Like that kind of destiny stuff is stuff that, like, I don't really think fits into the themes of Skyjax. And like, Skyjax is actually like trying to play antithetically to to those themes. But it's like, it was a fun story, like, and, and the luminaries did lead us in this direction. So I was really happy to follow bees down this rabbit hole, and I, I think it ended up in a really cool place. Like, Douglas is a complicated figure, and it gave him a lot of complicated feelings about characters, because we also decided that, like, yeah, the Corsair ship that hit Jonet's mom's ship was the Uhuru. And so that is delicious tension. The idea that Douglas would, you know, be really excited to see his son, but be really angry with his son's captain was cool. Like it gave two characters who were in the party, like strong relationships off the bat with Douglas, and there would be a lot to play with. And I think bees played it really well. It led to some cool tense moments some some real raw emotional moments, and you know I was left with this like delicious story of the past, and what I knew that bees didn't know was that you know or maybe again I need to re listen to what we recorded, but it's like well I also know that like Zana is going to be there, like I had made a point of saying like Janet's sister who is in the Tempest Armada, is going to be in Acheron for Jonat's, you know, Sweet 16 or whatever, but what eventually became Gobbleknocked. So I knew that, well, if we've got Zana and she's doing this Corsair thing, then we should have Winona be the captain of Zana's ship. And like, I'll figure out how to make that work later on. Did sort of very coincidentally stumble into the soup thing. And I think there are questions about that. So I will expand on that later, but like figured out a way to justify it. And yeah, it was, it was going to be that like Winona was going to be the captain of Zana's ship. And we could have this very Spider-Man, unbelievable coincidences that are so melodramatic and awesome. Like moment of, yeah, yeah, it's a family reunion of a family that thought it was like completely lost and broken, which did lead us to like, I think bees played the reunion absolutely naturally and perfectly. Like the idea that Winona shows back up and it's not just a easy, Hey, let's forgive everything and call the past the past. And I, for for that matter, I thought both Tyler and Rashawn did a, a great job with it too, of like, having these kids not really have a sense of the fact that like their their mother was missing from their life and resenting that, but being more, man, I really want to have a mom. Like Rashawn put it very well. Like I want to have a mom. I want to have a captain. I want this to work. So mom and dad figure out how this can work because now that I have this again, I don't want to give it up. Like I think that is a really beautiful and natural way that, that a child could react to, to a situation like this. And I, I think Douglas's reaction of like, I had to raise these kids on my own and you did not make an effort to reach out that that's, that's a hard line. And I think, you know, it is a completely justifiable and like a very decent line to play. It left me in a troublesome spot of like, how, am i a going to even make like Winona's hidden identity work? and b, how am I going to justify the ways in which she left this family because like, I don't want necessarily her choice to have been the right choice, but I do want it to be an understandable choice. And especially because we're playing with all this colonialism, like brutally practical, like it's an impossible situation to imagine having one parent, you know, working in another place to support the family while, while not being able to be present. But there are circumstances that our horrible and unjust world creates where That's exactly what you have to do or what some families, you know, have to do. So if that is justifiable, like I wanted to try and find some reason sort of related to that, that her disappearance could be justifiable. And kind of where I ended up and, you know, Winona explained this uh, on the episode itself is like, well, I got hit and, you know, my choices were to either accept like take the L. Uh, go back to the Red Feather Syndicate, be stripped of my captaincy and like other dangerous things happen to me and no longer have this lifeline to support my family. Or I like take the L in a different way and go off and become a Corsair and in the process fake my death because I do have something in my captaincy contract that says like shares of what I am owed are are sent out to my family and will support them. This is based on, like, actual pirating law uh, and matelage. The idea that, like, pirates would pay out, like, bounties that they captured from other ships according to shares. And everybody would have, like, a standard share, but you could be paid, like, beyond your share if you, for instance— were injured in the course of battle. Like if you had lost a limb or an eye or or something like that, like there was something built into the uh, constitutional agreement that each ship came to of how someone was to be treated in that situation. And if you had a family back home they could receive your shares and compensation for your death. And if you had a partner on the ship, and these were the the gay marriages of pirate times, like your your matey, uh you could be bound through matelage, and that person would receive your share, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So I, I was sort of picking up that like way back when the Red Feather Syndicate, because it's sort of Evolved into the the horrible mega corporation from a company that used to just produce this very miraculous and valuable thing, and was really linked to naval practices and, and maritime stuff because. The history of the world's navies, especially, well, and I say the world's navies, the history of uh, like kind of European navies as they evolved around the 1700s and 1600s and whatnot did become like they were very democratic institutions, more democratic than the places they hailed from. like. It's very common on pirate ships for for everything to be done democratically, for people to elect captains and, you know, have a say in choosing what ships the the ship goes after and, like, how, how different pirate voyages conducted themselves. But even outside of piracy, that was kind of the thing in official world navies in that the people on those ships really came to believe that, like, I deserve a say in how the ship is conducted. We might be taking our orders from the empire of the mainland, but like on this ship, we are our own nation. And like, we can do things like depose our captain. We can do things like choose not to fight in every battle and whatnot. And so like, that is part of like the history of the reemergence of democracy in the United States, like just coming from, well, a lot of these people did serve time on ships, and this was kind of the culture at the time. All of that said, the old company, Red Feather Syndicate, like had these historic practices of being relatively fair to the people who were working for them. And that's kind of what Winona went with is like, well, if I fake my own death, if if Winona Kessler disappears and I become someone else to join the tempest armada and fight against the red feather syndicate the red feathers instead of punishing me they're going to send my family this one last big payment and that will be a good amount of support that i can offer them for a while and like the other thing is like well i then am a criminal and like am a criminal that is a high priority criminal because if it is discovered that like i Left a captaincy with the red feather syndicate to become a corsair, then the red feather syndicate is gonna come after everyone I know to to get at me because like I stole a ship. And and even more than stealing a ship, it's it's stealing feather weave, like an unforgivable crime. If she did contact her family, that could tip off the syndicate that that she is alive and that the family is like a lever to get to them, but like it also kind of like embroils the family in the conspiracy. And there's a foreseeable instance where the red feathers capture and try Douglas for aiding and abetting a pirate, which would be bad uh, because then uh, you know Janet and Zana would have no parents or support, and the the, the family would be much worse off. So like even if the thought To, I think most reasonable people of like choosing to leave your life as a quote unquote law abiding citizen and join this kind of revolutionary, like uh, freedom fighting force or what have you, and abandoning your family in the process is unthinkable to most reasonable people. Like, there are real reasons to do this. Now, do I think that is like the the total sum of uh, Winona's reasoning? Like, no. I don't think it's really possible to walk into never, actually never reaching out and contacting your family without more complicated emotional things happening at the same time. But I can see the logic threads there. I can believe that enough to play a character. So, you know, now we're we're in a circumstance where... Jonathan's mom is, is back from the dead, you know, for f- from a certain point of view. And, like, Douglas is having to reckon with the fact that, like, it wasn't that she was cruelly taken from him exactly. Like, there is some of that cruelty in, embroiled in it, which makes things more complicated. But, like, she left and, and she didn't try and reach out. And kind of the reason that she's reemerging now is, like, Zana and and fate sort of like dragged her back in, into their lives. That is a lot to grapple with. That is a lot to ask anyone to grapple with at the same time that you're, you're also grappling with, well, this man that you've resented because a, you thought he took your wife from you and destroyed your family and, you know, had even more complicated feelings of resentment because he's out there like teaching your son which is is a huge affront and and the fact that like your son also has no idea about any of this and likes this guy like that's a fucking lot to deal with in the first place it's a lot to ask anyone to deal with and then to find out like well all the feelings and anger that you've had about that like mm, improperly placed and are actually more properly placed and levied against the person that you loved uh and lost so like Douglas is in just this absolutely impossible emotional situation. And I I think he reacted to it beautifully. And speaking of beautiful reactions, like I really have to talk about like how well bees portrayed a father who was, you know, dealing with kids growing up and, and, and becoming adults, like going through this like ceremony of adulthood and like, other things that, like, sort of come with that and the complicated feelings. Like, Jonnet is out there, like, by many different measures being successful. He is part of one of the most legendary pirate crews out there. And, like, doing legendary stuff. Like, Jonnet saved a town from the Mariner. That's big stuff. That's big, heroic stuff. And something that, like, uh, you know... If my child was, like, literally out there saving towns from, like, nightmarish threats, I, I would be proud of them. But I'd also be worried. I'd be so worried about them and, and what they were doing. I'd be worried about the fact that, like, that job is dangerous and, like, you make decisions to make that job even more dangerous. And, like, there is the parent having to let go of the reins a little bit and, like, not necessarily loving everything that that entails, like I think when Douglas talked about the fact that Jonnet didn't contact home, he sent money home, but he didn't like reach out and and tell them what he was doing and that he was okay like that is difficult stuff, and like Johnt has a similar thing, right of well, Johnt's part of Ventoria's pirate crew. his father could conceivably get in trouble if like Jonat Kessler is sending messages home and it makes it clear to the red feather syndicate, any red feather syndicate member that could be happened to be looking into things that Douglas Kessler is somehow embroiled with a Corsair. Like that could be dangerous and bad, but like Douglas still wants to hear from his son, you know? And d- while Douglas was upset about that, had complicated fe- feelings about Oromar, the Uhuru and all of that, like, was still so happy to have John at home and to share this ceremony and to see the the man that his son was becoming and juxtapose against that, like that against like the sibling dynamic of, we well, also have Zana here and she is progressing on a very similar path, but doing it in a way that Douglas is a lot more comfortable with because there is more contact and closeness within it. So I I, I thought Bees's portrayal of all of that was really beautiful and like so much fun to watch. Like he made it entertaining. He made it emotional. He hit all of these wonderful notes. And I just have wonderful things to say about Bees as a performer and collaborator. I had such a good time. So that brings us to another collaborator that we had on this arc and that was Rashawn Nadine Scott. Now, Rashawn is somebody that I knew from Mystery County Monster Hunters Club. I had also invited Rashawn onto an episode of One Shot that actually has not aired yet because it was done to support a Kickstarter project, but that project didn't hit Kickstarter like at the time that they were expecting. And the, those episodes are basically sitting on ice until that project is ready to. Move forward. So, like, I had recorded with Rashawn before. I was familiar with uh, Rashawn's performances, and I I like Rashawn. Like, I, I I think she is a really really great performer in actual play spaces and outside. Because Rashawn is also a recurring character on HBO's South Side, which is this really over the top amazing comedy that is about Chicago's South Side neighborhoods and like with these larger than life characters there. And Rashaan plays a, a spectacular character who is a joy to watch on that show. And I think on mystery County, like if you haven't listened to mystery County yet, do yourself a favor. It is a great actual play show. It is one where the whole cast is really willing to commit to very strong and sudden choices that like, you know, you'd think Oh, this would be something that they coordinated beforehand, but like very very rarely is that the case. They are just like so willing to lean hard into really big swings, and you get to watch it all unfold in front of you organically. Um, Rashawn plays uh Shamanda on that show, and like she just she has some of the, my favorite bits in the thing. Her her character is a delightfully awful person and also like an awful person in the sense that like, well, this is a teenager in an impossible situation. So like, it's pretty easy for that to break awful, but like never, never do I resent really any of the characters on that show for making bad decisions because like they feel very authentic in the way they make these bad decisions. And they're always so entertaining. And so Rashawn, like is such a, such a great performer. Like I knew kind of that, like w- that, we needed to have Zana cast as well because there was going to be a lot of back and forth between Zana and Jonnet, and I wanted it to feel like authentic and not like, well, this is one of five NPCs that I am juggling. And frankly, because Zana is like a major character and probably going to recur in the show at some point, like. I, I didn't want another major character to be like a, a white person's voice in a black person's mouth. Like we, we already went through that with, with Oromar and as if I can reduce that kind of thing on the show, especially with, with major characters, I want to do that. Like in, I mean, this is getting into other things, but like in representing a world as a GM, I certainly don't want it to be the sort of thing where, well, all the NPCs that we're going to see from now on are white because that's the only culture. Like uh, those are the only cultures that I can really, you know, portray without it being a problem because like that creates its own other problem of like, well, now, now you've just filled the world with white people, which is also bad but like for major characters like if i can and i can largely thanks to you know patreon supporters and whatnot go out and find a performer who can just where that is not an issue and they are free to represent the story and character however they want and like i i know it'll be good like that that's kind of what i knew that i had to do with zana and like those are big shoes to fill um and i had sort of like with people that like I work with regularly, I had already like cast Allie Barthwell on the show. Who I think if you go back, you listen to Teacher Way, I think if I had Allie come in as as uh, Jonathan's sister, like Allie also would have done a great job. But like I wanted to work with uh, new people. You know, I, I've been doing this stuff for for like almost a decade now. And it's it's good to rotate in new people when you can, and I had this person who I had worked with before, and she was a delight to work with. I loved the performances that she gave on on her own podcast, and was like, "Well, let's let's bring let, let's bring Rashawn in to play this role." I mean, I talked to Tyler about it too because I was like, "Hey, you know, we are going to have your sister on the show. I think your sister should be played by a performer." who are you thinking? This is who I'm thinking. And like, we we both kind of decided that like, yeah, Rashawn is going to be a really strong choice for this. And lo and behold, we were correct. A lot of people had very strong feelings about the sibling dynamic on the show. I absolutely loved it. Uh, As somebody who is an older brother to a younger sister, who is also in performance and writing spaces, like, there is a lot of that rivalry there even as it is mixed in with a lot of like genuine love and understanding and like like bonding over our similarities there is still like well those similarities could could cause us to butt heads a little bit we are both at the dinner table competing for the same amount of attention and that can lead to some tension and, and, and sniping and whatnot. And that is, you know, what, what Rashan did. And I think the way that Rashawn's character, like I had set up a thing that I tend to do a lot in, in Skyjacks, when I introduce a character, I like them to be hyper competent. Like, think of Hildred Gastar, the best jouster in the world, the broker who, you know, despite having some complications, is also the best criminal in the world. Ormar Vale, the best captain in the world. Uh, Sifa, the bandit queen, like, the, the, the best leader for, for this underground resistance that they could be. Like, these people who are mythical figures because of, like, what they can do and what they've accomplished and what they will be able to do. I love that shit. And that was kind of the one thing that I was pushing on Zana already. She's like in with a prominent ship within the Tempest Armada. And she's also star watching and, and doing great with it. Like that is a canvas to paint on. And I will admit it is pretty blank. Like that doesn't say a lot about personality. And the only things that we really had to go on for personality was Jonat's reaction to finding out this stuff about his sister. And knowing that Jonet like, stole Zana's map, like, that's kind of all we had to give Rashawn, being like, hey, this is what we know about the character. I liked Rashawn's decision of, like, not only are these things, like, true, like, in a sense that, like, hey, guess what? Zana Kessler? is actually very good at her job. Zana Kessler is somebody who gets people in these environments to really believe in her and support her, and she works hard to do it, and she's proud of it. But she's also into building that idea of herself, projecting that idea of herself, and communicating that idea of herself to her brother. Like, that is both taking these, like, oh, yeah, super competent, pulpy nonsense character traits and making them extremely human and, and flawed at the same time. Like, yeah, perhaps, like, some of her legend is inflated. And it's not that she doesn't have things to back it up. It's just that she's so invested in projecting that, that, like, you know, she, she is, like, having to keep up with with her own hype at the same time and feeling a lot of pressure to do that. And like very transparently trying to do these things because she genuinely does want to impress her brother and father and, you know, be seen as a cool heroic person who is valuable and, you know, worthy of praise and attention. Like I thought that was really cool. I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition against Jonnet who like, knows that there is this future version of himself out there that is really cool and doing the right things and, like, living an admirable life. Like, Jonathan knows that there is this, this version of him out there in the future, and he is racing to meet it and become it. And he is struggling along the way with the sort of things that that kind of destiny makes you do, how they are dangerous, how they are scary, how they are difficult. Even if you're fated to end up somewhere, the effort that you have to take to get there can be overwhelming. Jonnet has already, like, sacrificed so much, gives so much, and feels that he has to give so much. Like, it can put him in dangerous and and difficult situations. So you've got Jonnet who, like, in certain ways does want the attention, does want the glory, um, but has different assurances behind him of how he is able to, to find and meet those things. And like, he also, he wants those things to be recognized. Like when he won the race at IRP Ora, he like sent money back home partially to support his family, but partially also to communicate, like, look, I'm out here being successful, doing this thing. When he showed up in Acheron, he showed up in the fancy clothes. He showed up in the fancy makeup. He was ready to come back home a, a hero and, and like an adult and and be respected in that way. So Janet is also looking for those things. And like, you've got these two amazing siblings in the same family together who are kind of looking for the same thing and are annoyed that they're both occupying the same space. There is a sense of, can't you just be impressed with me? Look at all the cool stuff that I'm doing. I think that is a cool sibling dynamic because underneath it all, there's still love, you know, like Zana, like as much as she's giving Jonat gifts and whatnot to show him up, she's also doing it because she genuinely loves her brother and, and, and wants him to be successful and wants them to be close. And I, I think Rashawn did a great job of playing both of those things in a really entertaining way. Like with almost everything that Rashawn said uh, when we were down with recordings, it was a laugh line. It was spectacular uh, and, and so much fun. I, I really was so glad that we got to have Rashawn on. And I hope to have Rashawn back um, to, to play Zana more because I love that character. I, I love how that character works with Jonet. And I, I want to see that character more in the future. But those were not the only guests that we had this arc. We also had Mel D'Amato and uh, Drew Murzieski contributing to this this plot that was unfolding. Uh, We also had the Meredith brothers come on to do Deeru Hurus with us. This was a guest-heavy arc, and it was one that was still kind of happening in the very early days of of Project Falcon being in the worlds where – a lot of my time and attention was was being taken up by taking care of this baby, and you know, I, I, I want to briefly let's 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 focus on like the the overwhelming positives here. Mel came in to both advance Braith Ashworth, uh, their character from Skyjack's Courier's Call, advance that character's storyline, and advance Travis's storyline. And, you know, (laughs) it was one that Mel was like, hey, I think this is going to be a difficult scene because I think whether he wants to or not, Johnny is going to fight me. And I'm like, don't be ridiculous. But lo and behold, it was that uh, uh, Travis like tried to avoid getting the letter and like tried to stymie this helpful NPC that I had communicated with Johnny a while. Like, hey, this character is going to show up and give you some letters and we need to have a scene about that. Johnny really, really pushed back because Travis can't help but do that. And, like, yeah, despite having, like, that challenging thing of, like, needing, like, hey, not only am I going to deliver these letters, but this character fucking owes me because for those who have not listened to the bonus content surrounding Skyjack's courier's call, Britt's parents are missing and they went missing trying to do this, like, big, important thing with the Thinavranti, who is the, we know now, Angel, who is the Postmaster General of the Swiftwell Courier Service. So, like, they were doing this big, intense thing, and based on the luminaries that we drew when we were, were finding this out about Braith's parents from Margaret, that Travis was involved in this job. So, Braith had to leave that scene being like, hey, I'm pretty sure my parents are alive and I need you to commit to help me getting them back because it is partially your fault that they're not in my life right now. So a tough scene made tougher by the fact that we have just an unbelievably irreverent character who absolutely refuses to see consequences for his actions um, or, or, or to admit uh, culpability for his own actions. But I think Mel did a great job. I'm really loving how that storyline is unfolding. That's one that is co-GM'd by by myself and Drew. We're both really excited about all of the implications for it and all the cool stuff that will unfold from it. It's going to be great. It's going to be really cool. It's going to be really fun. And I can't wait to keep chasing that down more. But yeah, I, I think Mel did a did a great job. I was so happy to perform with them. You you will note on those episodes where Mel came in, you can hear Falcon a little bit because they had to hold Falcon because, like, we had nobody else to watch the baby while we were recording these segments. And for Drew, Drew, thankfully, this this was not one where we had to bring Drew into the room to record with us. But I did need to get Drew to write Fithina's letter, which— a lot of the stuff from Fithina's letter, like I found out about that information when Drew sent the letter to me and then we had Drew read uh, Fithina's letter because like I feel like, well, you know, we've got the performer in my home, might as well get it in the character's own voice. Yeah. Like the guests really, really made this arc. They they gave great performances, um, but now we're, we're going to start to move into maybe uh, the compliment sandwich of this arc One of the big challenges that I had with this arc was because we had so many guests and so many guests that I thought were absolutely necessary to tell the story that we needed to tell in this place at this time, it was impossible to schedule. Like we needed not just the main cast, which can be difficult enough to find two recordings a month for the main cast, but we needed to have other performers be able to make our recordings as well and – you know, work, work with them and play with them in the limited time that we have, because we've got Tyler on the West coast. We've got, uh, Nathan over in the UK, which ultimately means that like we record in these four hour chunks, but we really can't move them to be earlier or or later uh, or or stretch them out too far because you're either asking one performer to wake up really early in the morning and like are you getting the best performance out of them or asking a performer to to work really late at night and are you getting the best performance out of them. And then you've got everybody's normal schedules because we have to record on weekends because once again, we need somebody to be up relatively early and somebody to be up relatively late. So that's not happening on a weeknight when when people ha- have to work. So we have narrow windows where we can record these things. We need to have, like, uh, Bees had to be there for most of them. And, like, I was trying to be like, you know, uh, we just want you to commit to three recordings. But for for Bees, we ended up having to bring him in, I think, for four or five. Like, it was a lot. And then Rashawn. Because we're recording on weekends, Rashawn is recording with Mystery Country Monster Hunters Club, and they do weekly recordings, which I cannot imagine doing that. That is way too hard. Like, I need to do the two recordings a month with Skyjacks where we build up a reserve because it is so hard to schedule. But they do weekly recordings on Saturdays, so... Like, part of it is like, hey, I need to either make sure that everybody can make a Sunday or we have to ask Mystery County to rearrange how they record things, which isn't fair, to impact another production. Which, at the time we were recording this stuff, Rashawn and Mystery County were not part of the network yet. They are part of the network now, so I feel like I can make that request now, but, like, even still, I don't want to have to. And, like... Getting everybody in the same room, within the same time window, and also making sure that there was enough room in the story to air out everybody's stuff. Like, this was a challenge that we had in Dumignon when we had just one guest, you know, like there needed to be a lot of stuff between Lex and Tyler because like that is what the story called for. And at the same time, I'm trying to balance both Gable and Ormar and Travis's separate storylines and bring things together and do it in a way that like fits within the narrow time window that we're working with. All of that Led once again to this arc for me, and in my opinion, as a performer, feeling a little bit more compressed than I would have liked it to be. I've said it before; my my favorite arc of Skyjacks to record thus far has been uh, Nordia, and the reason for that is we had all the time in the world to explore, like. There was three days of in-game time, but we could spend as many episodes playing out those three days of in-game time as we wanted. You know, it ended up being 40 episodes of story around that, which is a long time. But, like, I kind of think each note of that story got to be beautiful and, and also fun and, and frivolous. Like, we really got to chase down everybody's thing and see – different configurations and iterations of characters as they were going on these various journeys. It didn't feel like we were missing out on anything where I have felt both for really, really for almost every arc since that I have intentionally been trying to keep things short, like very specifically with Ungoni and silver bullet I wanted to try and keep those short as I could. Then with Dumignon, I had planned on having more time, but we ended up not having as much time. And with this arc, like I had ideally wanted to take more time with things, but like the scheduling made it so difficult. It's like, well, we have to move because I can't keep booking all of these people in all of these slots because the time between recordings is going to stretch out. That also impacts the quality of the show. And it's, you know, frankly, more expensive to produce, more expensive to edit. All of these things, like, can get out of control. So I did need to make this arc short. And we missed out on things like part of the reason that we built this Sweet 16 part of Jonat's narrative was that conversation between Jonat and Travis of Travis going, well, I've done everything, but I would like to see Acheron because it's it's where you're from, Jonat. And we didn't get to have enough Jonnet Travis time. And that was partially just due to the nature of the story as it was unfolding and partially due to the constraints that we had around time and recording. But let's talk a little bit about things that were fun and surprising along the way. Originally, what I had planned for the arc is I wanted to have this thing where Jonat showed up. We get to meet Zana. We get to meet Douglas. The tensions are kind of revealed. Then I wanted Zana to go off with her group on the turkey hunt and for Jonat to go off with Travis and Gable on the turkey hunt. And for there to be this simmering tension between Oromar and Douglas at home when, before tensions can really boil over and these characters can go at each other, there is this crisis that happens that that ended up being, you know, like the Red Feathers trying to steal uh, the Kessler family recipe. Like, I, I wanted that to, like, force these characters to kind of work together and come to a kind of gruff understanding that, you know, they would be willing to let tensions ease in favor of Janet because they can see, like, okay, yeah, you know, that the Ormar has a, a noble soul beneath the thing that I am angry at him about. And also, like, I can see the ways in which, you know, working with him has been good for Janet And then we would be able to maneuver into this overall, like, emotional reveal of Winona still being around. But that didn't end up happening. Jonnet sort of went back inside to see his dad at one point, um, like, around all of this tension happening, and, like, before everything escalated there, I had to initiate like, this, which I'm gonna call it, this, this emergency scene, and Jonnet ended up you know, going off with his dad, which does make sense as a character choice. John, it would do that. And I should have foreseen that. But that ended up with a party split not working. I wanted Jonet to be with Travis and Gable and kind of have this introspective bonding with them while we were dealing with heavy tensions with Oromar working with Douglas and Hip while Winona was also there. So that we could have these characters like carry the the guilt and tension of this wild, you know, again, Spider-Man-esque backstory that was playing out for them. And, you know, that split didn't work out, didn't go down the way I exactly wanted it to. And and that changed things around. Like, like you can feel that. I, I do think, like, obviously, Liz and Johnny. Are amazing performers, the conversations they had as Gable and Travis were good. They reinforced those characters. They, they worked on things. But I wanted a special moment between Jonet and, and Travis, and I didn't, I didn't get to do that. We didn't get to go on a turkey hunt. I should have anticipated that they would just try and turn Travis into a big turkey, and I just straight up did not do that, did not manage to pull that one off. So, <laughs> like, we, we we ended up with, like, well, yeah, they're going to fake it, so there won't actually be a turkey hunt. So I had, like, planned on them hunting a griffin turkey and for that to be interesting and exciting, and that didn't happen. And when it was clear that that wasn't going to happen, I was then planning, like, well, actually, this provides us with an excuse just to have a scene camping out beneath the stars with these characters. That could be fun. And, you know, that didn't that didn't end up happening just because of like player choices. And I want to follow those player choices more than I want to do everything else. So like because of that, like we didn't quite have the scenes that I was hoping we would have at least divided the way that I was hoping they would be divided, which also meant that like people weren't separate exactly in the ways that I was hoping for them to be. So it was harder to break up recordings. Like if Nathan is off in one recording segment and Tyler is off in the other recording segment, it's actually a lot easier to schedule because those are the two extremes of our like calendar stuff, calendar issues. So, I was, you know, really, really hoping that, that we could do it that way. Um, but you know, the scenes that we ended up with were great and, and I don't regret those. It did mean that we weren't, we also then weren't able to give the amount of attention that I wanted to the actual like coming of age ceremony scene. And I think the pacing of that played off weird I wanted there to be more of a party. Again, like in this arc, you will note that I planned for Sifa to show up. I foreshadowed Sifa being there. I was like, hey, the Bandit Queen is going to show up. This is finally an opportunity for Orimar and the Bandit Queen to talk. And yes, eventually they did. Um, I believe uh, based on a recording schedule, you have just heard that. So you know that that was a part of this arc. But I kind of wanted that to be more social before breaking off into like a private scene. And we didn't really get the stretch to do that. The Kessler family drama boiled up quite quickly. And that's just how and when that shook out, which, you know, pinched that scene and pinched the idea of a celebration. Like we really didn't get to look at the Uhuru crew celebrating Jonnet. Like, I would have uh, preferred uh, Bar Mitzvah style to maybe have different crew members get up and and say things about Jonnet. That could have been very fun. And we, we we just didn't get the space for it. So that was that was tough. A, a thing that is, like, not a disappointment or, or a flaw that I believe with the arc, but, like, a thing, I was at one point designing a Firebrand's Descended system Um, And I might still do this at some point, um, but I I really do feel as though I have missed a golden opportunity to actually do it. Uh, I was designing a Firebrand's Descended system to play out a visit to J.D. Lightfellow's cattle ranch, because we had mentioned that it was in the area. And I kind of wanted to do a thing with the Uhuru crew where we just took some crew members and found out what their uh, visit to the J.D. Lightfellow ranch was like. If you've never played Firebrands, the structure of the game is you play out different scenes as their own bespoke mini games, and those scenes are very specifically directed. So, like, you could have a scene for a duel, you could have a scene for a brawl, you could have a scene for a meal, and they each have their own mechanics that are kind of oriented to make those specific scenes interesting and fun. And, like, a lot of those—in Firebrands itself, a lot of those scenes are intimate, and the intimacy for the J.D. Lightfellow Ranch game would be fucking bizarre. Like, I, uh, you know, because that Lightfellow Ranch is, like, a slaughterhouse and a ranch and very much kind of about that being the experience, like— slaughtering a cow together would be a scene and maybe helping a cow give birth would be another scene and it's like there's this bizarreness of it being prescribed by the park but also like things that kind of naturally happen to you there like it is a weird idea and i think it would lead to like an insane comedy tangent to our plot that i think would have worked very well but like it does involve writing out a role-playing system and I didn't have time to do it because I was busy being a dad. So that's a minor disappointment. Overall though, like I like a lot of things that happened with this arc. I I think perhaps maybe one of the weaker things was, was the red feather subplot, but I truly loved the fact that they asked a seven-year-old girl what she happened to see. And I was like, cool, I know there are barn owls, so I'm going to try and describe what a barn owl of monstrous size sort of looks like from the perspective of a seven-year-old girl. I thought that was very fun. I think there could have been more tension with hip, but I really do like the place that things ended up. I I think I mentioned this in the recording itself. Like there were a bunch of different solutions that I had thought to like, okay, well, hip is going to have to get shot if if because I' have forgotten about the character for a little bit he wasn't there for the investigative sections and he was off alone so it makes sense to put him under threat especially because their characters and the audience do care about this NPC like it made sense but I was like oh, I'm not gonna kill hip off screen that is a huge waste of like the narrative weight that this character carries but threatening him and putting him in a situation where different people have to save him like, any one of the solutions that we came up with could be good. And like, you know, if Orimar saves him, that's great. Cause that means Douglas and hip can feel complicated in a different way about Orimar because he saved their uh, because he saves hip's life uh, If Gable saves him. Hey, that's great because Gable is dealing with angel shit constantly. And I could tie in this angelic eye thing and give hip another connection to John if Jonet saved him, hey, that's great because, like, you have all of this extreme guilt because you have traded your memories of this person for power in a critical moment. You feel weird and guilty about that, and you want to alleviate that in some way and miraculously being able to save this person's life without being able to see or interact with them is dope. So lots and lots of of cool ways that could have broken out and, like, yeah, the fact that it ended up being, like, a, a A divine solution allows us to have this eye and give hip and Jonnet more of a connection and you know what, what we'll see in the future, but like a way to communicate uh, and interact a little bit like I thought that broke out really, really cool. Everything else about the arc i mean like it it moved very smoothly and quickly, and there were so many fun performances and fun moments so i'm i'm gonna I'm just gonna check over my notes because a lot of these notes will speak for themselves once we uh, get the bonus content out there. You'll see how we made it. Oh, yeah. So originally there was going to be a little bit more about the culture of this area. One of the big emphasis is emphases or whatever that I wanted for uh, Acheron was on community, on the fact that this was Kind of a difficult place to live in and a dangerous place to live in. But Douglas sort of helped the whole area pull together as a community and weather these different challenges as a community. Like this is a mutual care, mutual aid sort of space. And that is what makes Acheron not only like empowers them to overcome these challenges, but what ultimately makes them strong and prosperous is that they relied on this community. You find that out in the world building that we did for Acheron, but like part of the thing that I, we had wanted to establish um, for Acheron that really didn't have time to feature because it would have called for a whole new slate of NPCs and a couple, I I think like a day or two to in, in the place to understand how this group worked and whatnot. You do gobbleknock do you do the running of the turkeys not because you have to in order to grow up this is an opt in sort of growth thing where y- the people who actually do the running of the turkeys are a special group of like kind of public servants and volunteers i think liz had mentioned like a little bit Power Rangers-esque where they are people who have special responsibilities and therefore like special powers that are like really valued within the community because of the sacrifices they make. And it would be the sort of thing where when you're growing up as a kid in Acheron, you see the elders in your community who are a part of this thing as heroic and cool. And you kind of want to be that and do that. And It's this cultural thing that pushes people into service because, like, we I I personally wanted that to be part of what had informed Jonnett's personality and values because, like, you see that very readily in Jonnett. Jonnett is the goodest boy in the world and he just wants to do a good job and he is willing to, like – Put his body and mind and soul on the line against the most terrifying forces the world has to offer in service of people who are absolute strangers to him. And he's done this over and over and over, and, you know, very dramatically sacrificed essential and important parts of himself in order to keep this service going. So, like, I knew that partially had to become, had to come from his parents and how they raised him and the community that he grew up in and how they reinforced those values. So we wanted to have like people who've undergone go- knocked. They are actually part of a special kind of like community service task force that does things like, well, when turkeys invade and break out or you know, the various folkloric monsters that exist in the world of Sphere threaten the community. They jump into action and help things out. But, like, they are also, like, the people when somebody, you know, breaks their leg working on the farm, they're jumping in to help out and also coordinating other people within the community to jump in to help out. Like, they are a way that this community invests in itself and in return the special power that they get is texting is being able to write messages on on feathers and zip them at each other like it was like oh this is perfect this is a thing that a teen would want and think is cool and would make sense for how it enables like the special community task force to serve its community like i thought it was a cool thing i I still think it's a cool thing. It just didn't get to show up because, again, there was there was not time, especially coordinating all the guests. Like we couldn't get everybody in the same room at the same time. And we're looking forward to the, the, the next arc that we're doing. So I think that's the last of my thoughts. I'm going to pivot to listener questions now. Actually, based on the length of this recording so far, it makes sense to split this off and have the listener questions be their own episode. I'm going to remind everybody that there's going to be our traditional or now traditional a uh, slight break between arcs. I'm thinking it's going to be one to two weeks. Uh, first of all, this is just a little reset uh, that we get to do for Casey. Uh, Casey's got just just a full editing schedule and is such a big part of what makes this show so special uh, that it, it's good to give Casey extra time. Also, a uh, part of our production, like the line, just so everybody knows, when we record raw audio, that audio goes to Joe, who does like a technical edit, uh, stripping up background noise and uh, basically making sure that the audio quality that uh, our, our narrative editors are working with is like as, as top quality as it can be. Then it goes to Tracy Barnett, who is our project manager and like does a lot of different things for the one shot network. But one of the things that Tracy does is help make sure that Casey has the audio that he needs. And Tracy also goes in and they make like initial assembly edits for Casey to make Casey's job just a little bit easier. Tracy is about to have a second child. And so we're, we're trying to build up a lot of audio for Tracy to be able to step away for a little bit and, uh, you know, help help with the baby the way that I did when project Falcon was first born. So um, we're just uh, making sure like, like we're going to take this gap to, Prepare and make sure that we have all of our little ducks in a row, so that uh, production doesn't have to hiccup further on down the line. Because taking a little time up front uh, saves us from you know potentially having to take a lot of time or running into a bunch of delays and emergencies down the line. Okay, so with all of that said. Sky Campaign Skyjacks is a OneShot Network production. For more information, be sure to follow us on Twitter over at CampaignPod for updates about live shows and other events we might be doing. You can find more great gaming shows over at OneShotPodcast.com. Like OneShot. Take it from me, heroes, the most fun way to learn about new games is to listen to them get played. Every week on One Shot. I, your host, James D'Amato, bring you actual play recordings with a talented cast of improvisers, game designers, and other notable nerds. Each month features a new group trying a new system, exploring a wide variety of genres. The stories are self-contained, so you can jump in anywhere, and it's a great way to find new games. Discover the magic of RPGs with One Shot on your favorite podcast app. Jonnet Kessler was played by Tyler Davis, who can be found on Twitter and Instagram at TylerADave. You can stream his short film, Lining, on the Roku channel for free. Just search for The Shortlist Summer. Gable was played by Liz Anderson, who can be found on Twitter at LizAnderson underscore underscore underscore, or on her podcast, Paired. Travis Madigo was played by Johnny O'Mara, who can be found on Twitter at JohnnyNBriefs, Briefs, or on his podcasts, Bill Buds and Dilettante Ball. Captain Oromar Vale was played by Nathan Blades, who can be found on Twitter at PhantomArtsENT. You can also find them streaming on twitch.tv TheNeonCaster. I am James D'Amato, your host and game master. You can find me on Twitter at OneShotRPG, or on my other podcast, OneShot. The original music featured in this podcast was written, composed, and performed by Arnie Parrott. You can find him on Twitter over at A-R-N-E-P-A-R-R-O-T-T. You can find more of his work at atptunes.com. This episode was edited by Casey Tony, who can be found on Twitter at Casey Pony, or on his podcast, NeoScum. Our logo was designed by Fiona Shea, who can be found on Twitter at Fiona Pup. The world of Sphere was inspired in part by the music of the Decemberists and Illimat, produced by Together Studios. This show uses a modified version of the Genesis role-playing system designed by Sam Stewart and a team of talented professionals who were fired by the private equity firm owning Fantasy Flight Games.
1: And once for our friends near to rise Twice to the dearest we're leaving behind Who know we can never deny The call of
0: the sky